This is Reformers, the gritty details behind the world's greatest bootstrap success stories. In today's episode, I welcome Andy Prochaska, the founder and COO at Article, the leading e-commerce brand for beautiful, modern furniture. Andy is an engineer by background and a serial entrepreneur who has launched a handful of companies during his career, the most recent of which is Article. Since its founding, Article has grown from four co-founders into a global organization with more than 900 employees and nine figures in revenue all while being majority self-funded by the founders. Without further ado, please welcome Andy. Hello. Hello. Hey, Andy, this is Andrew. Hey, Andrew. Do you go by Andrew or do you go by Andy? I go by Andrew, but I'm uh, happy to go by whatever you want. No, no, no that's <laughs> fine. It's good. Good variety. We, uh, we share a name here, so... Uh... Yeah, we can keep it mixed up a little bit. Uh, yeah. well, I, I appreciate you doing this. My whole family is obsessed with articles, so I'm going to be a little bit of a local hero. Oh, um, that's uh, very flattering. Great. I, yeah. hope uh, I, hope we, I, I hope we're delivering on time and, uh, and uh, all the rest of it. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the supply chain has been pretty hectic with everything that's going on, but it sounds like you've been growing to accommodate all of those pains? The supply chain has been sort of uh, mind-blowingly complex for the last year, and it, it sort of continues to throw zinger after zinger. Um, and I, yeah, so we're doing our best despite all of that, and we've actually had some good wins, but it is uh, certainly not without its main big challenges. Well, I'm excited to hear more about them and definitely a topic I want to dig into later. But sure. I figured we'd maybe just kick off with a little bit more about your background before launching Article. I was born in England, in London, and uh, emigrated to Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, Western Canada, uh, when I was six years old with my family. My dad uh, was a researcher, a neurophysiologist. And... Uh, we were, or he was given a, a, a professorship at the University of Alberta. It's an oil province, and uh, they were in the midst of, a, of, a, of an economic diversification effort uh, with some oil royalties at the time. That's what brought us over from England. So I grew up there and uh, with my, uh, my family, my, my twin brother, Sam, and my younger sister, uh, Helenka, and um, had a fantastic childhood. I uh, grew up next to a, a creek in the middle of in the middle of town, sort of bizarre, building bridges and uh, uh, zip lines. And I, I remember watching Star Wars: Return of the Jedi uh, with my brother in the uh, late '80s. And we ended there were a bunch of big pine trees behind our house, so we uh, we attempted uh, at great peril to build a um, Ewok village up there. And uh, I'm astonished we survived that, but. Uh, fast forward a bit, I, uh, I did a computer engineering degree at the University of Alberta. Um, uh, finished that in 2001 into the midst of the uh, dot-com crash. That was quite the about face from uh, 2000 to 2001. It went from sort of green, nothing but green pastures to an absolute drought. And then uh, I spent a bit of time in consumer electronics and uh, started uh, a couple of small businesses with my brother and uh, we. Did software as a service for real estate agents before SaaS was a thing, and uh, and and started a medical devices company for stroke rehab, um, and then the great financial crisis hit, and we had to sort of refactor things a bit. 
started a mattress company with, with we sort of asked the question, my brother and I, I remember we were sitting around asking the question, what is something everyone needs? And while we are still solvent in these other enterprises of ours that, that had been, that had taken a massive hit during the GFC, you know, what can we do with this small nest egg we've managed to save up? And uh, the answer was, of course, mattresses. So we started a mattress company. Actually, my brother runs that, uh, runs our mattress business still. It's, it's called goodmorning.com. And um, and uh, after that, we uh, uh, I, I I I was running the medical business at the time, and that's what sort of led to article um, had this idea that uh, we could cut out a whole lot of inefficiency in the supply chain if we would aggregate orders uh, together before we before we had to house them in warehouses and distribute them and so on. If we aggregated um orders for products we could send those minimum order quantities to factories overseas uh, fill containers and then um offer offer incredibly low prices fill the fill the containers which is usually a, a minimum order quantity is one container and ship that container over and cross dock it minimal warehouse minimal infrastructure needs and deliver to customers at, at a drastically lower price so that's sort of what kicked off uh uh, article. I, I got in touch with Amir, who who uh, I, we'd done computer engineering together at the University of Alberta uh, before he he um, he went to Los Angeles uh, this, uh, around the same time, nearly uh, 2000, I think it was. And uh, we reconnected. I, I called him up and said, "Hey, maybe there's something to this." And we started uh, we started what has now become Article. So you have the idea. You get the founding team in place. How do you then go about convincing designers and manufacturers to work with you and take a risk on you when you're in your infancy and basically no one's heard about you? You know, what you just described is almost exactly what vendors, what the question we were asked by vendors. Uh, Amir, on our, uh, Amir and I did our first sourcing trip and that would have been 2011 or 2012, I, I forget which. Um, and I remember being asked that question several times by by some fairly large uh, established vendors at the uh, at the time. Here's what happened: um, we were we were at a trade show. This is in, I think it was in Guangzhou, um, and we 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 uh, we had found a a booth of a large manufacturer, and uh, the CEO was there, uh, as I recall, and and we we. Told them about our idea and that we needed a foot in the door with a with a vendor. I didn't put it exactly as un, un, uh, ungracefully as that, but sort of gave him a bit of a pitch. And he said, "Oh no, you guys are way too you know you're just starting out. We we uh, we aren't interested." But if you go down the hall, and he pointed down the hall at this at this shop at this booth uh, a couple of couple of doors down, he said, "You should go speak to those guys. I think they'll help you out." And sure enough, uh, we found this. We found a vendor. Um, it was actually a. Uh, I mean, our. Uh, it was somewhat of an aggregator itself, so it aligned quite well with our business. They um, they would aggregate orders in Asia uh, from multiple. They'd source from multiple vendors, and they they established a reason uh, sort of a small catalog, and then they allowed us to um, leverage their catalog. That was the foot in the door moment that allowed us to get started. So. You know, I'd be lying if I said there was um, there was anything more than just uh, determination, uh, patience, and a bit of coincidence in the whole equation that got us started. But that certainly was uh, was a start. And and um, 
fast forward ahead a few years, and that first vendor that we uh, that we met that, that didn't for whom we were too small is now one of our one of our um, uh, we're now one of their major customers. And is that a relationship you just were deliberate about maintaining over time, or just worked out? Uh, no, way? no, it was it was a relationship we 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 quite forgot about until until we until we reached a point where we needed to we needed to expand our vendor footprint and work with more vendors and establish more capacity and move into our own designs and so on. And, uh, and, you know, once you get into the, into a particular world, uh, you, you realize it's relatively small and, and uh, a lot of the same names sort of creep up from different, uh, come at you from different, different places. And the, these folks were among them. So no, we didn't, but when we went back to them, it, it, uh, it was, um, I suppose we chuckled a little bit about it, uh, uh, but yeah, now we've got a good relationship with them. That's great. I'd love to hear the full circle. So going back to the early days, you you ran this initial vendor. Uh, you have several co-founders. I believe there's four co-founders in total. That's right. How did you do division of labor? I assume you all had to do a little bit of everything, but were you each skilled in different areas or, or was it sort of everyone's a generalist and we're all running on all fours? Well, we were all um, computer engineers, so uh, how's that for <laughs> for a little bit of uh, professional bias? But um, no, we the division of labor was was pragmatic at the beginning. Uh, I was I was running this this small um, medical devices business. My brother was was busy with the mattress uh, company. Fraser was uh, was helping out in his own uh, business at that time. Uh, and, and Amir was the free agent. <laughs> and so, so Amir was full-time and the rest of us were contributors sort of on demand. And when, you know, I'd had a little bit of experience with intellectual property and uh, um, uh, some operation stuff, some marketing uh, side of things. Uh, my, my uh, Sam, my brother had, he was, uh, he was, uh, he had some, more sort of on the technical side of things. Fraser was was good on the organizational structure. And of course, Amir, uh, CEO, just made sense. Um, so he took the reins. So the division of labor was quite uh, well established up front, uh, but was, um, you know, like when you start something up, it, it really is, you, you have hopes and intention for, uh, for, for it to become something large. But at that time, it's nothing more than an, uh, you know, an idea, uh, a little bit of cash in the bank and, and a desk and a chair and, and, a, and a few individuals. So it, um, you have to contribute where you uh, can be most effective and you have, to be, you have to be ready to do things that you are outside of your comfort zone. Um, and looking back on it, we were all pretty good at stepping up when we needed to. So there was no explicit agreement, really, uh, just kind of a shared vision and, and uh, roll up our sleeves and get to it. And at what point did you go full time? And can you talk a little bit more about your decision to jump in full time? And as well, I guess maybe you can't speak on behalf of your co-founders, but I'm curious to hear how you knew it was the right time to go 100 percent on an article. I sort of jumped in and out. Um, uh, of the business in those early days, I was uh, I was on the you know with Amir in the early days for sourcing on the intellectual property side of things. I did a lot of work, um, and then I was our first creative director. Uh, 
boy, if those if those those first photos look looking at you, contrasting those the quality of those first photos with our first creative director versus um, versus uh, versus someone actually skilled in the art of making things look good. Uh, my goodness, it's um, my, I'm blushing just thinking about it right now. But nonetheless, it got us a start. Um, it, you know, for, speaking for myself, um, I didn't get. 100% full-time dedicated to article until uh, about four years ago. And, and at that stage, we'd been through a, we really hit some traction in 2015, 2014, 2015, 2015 was, um, uh, was a, was a real breakout year. And, and it just kind of ramped up a little bit uh from there until until the summer of 2017 where we just we, we'd sort of grown at this breakneck pace and uh we were bursting a little bit at the seams and and it, it was a it was a again a pragmatic decision i just um uh, i remember having this chat with my brother this was still in edmonton at that time and and uh the decision was made in all of about five minutes and 10 days later i relocated myself and the family over to vancouver here and uh first day in the office i think i uh it was quite the shotgun move from it was from contemplation of of the idea to to uh sign a sign a lease on a house uh somehow procure two vehicles get the kids enrolled in school and be sitting at the desk on day one was i think nine and a half days or something something like that um so long story short uh four years ago well it sounds like it was a high conviction decision if it happened that quickly so taking an outsider's perspective one of the most, I think, unique things about the business is how capital efficient you guys have been to date. It seems like a furniture business would be not only very difficult logistically, but also very capital intensive. You're moving large, heavy items or high average order value. How did you actually go about funding the business early on? So the business is almost entirely founder funded. Um, early on, well, we uh, we put we uh, signed a check to to uh, uh, to the brand new corporation and the, the money went into the bank account and then we sort of got to business really um, and it wasn't it was not much money it was uh, from from the, the four of us personally and then uh, I think in total over the years this is including some outs the, the only the small amount of outside investment I think we somewhere between five and six million in total so how how did we grow uh, incredibly carefully? If you rewind and you look at, you look at the various trends over the last ten years, first of all, there was the um, daily deal type uh, craze. So fab this is going back in ancient history and internet internet years, uh, but there was fab.com and uh, One King's Lane and a number of others. Uh, they they sort of hit this this um, popularity news cycle heavy deep deep. Uh, large amounts of venture capital growth at all uh, growth at all costs. We'll worry about efficiency and profitability later. Uh, I remember I remember having discussions with the the other four or the other three founders about you know should we get some VC should we should we go into the same growth at all cost race and every time the result of the conversation was it's just not us the entire fund the, the the foundation of the business rests on efficiency. Uh, starting with this efficiency of the supply chain, cutting out the inefficiencies, cutting out the uh, the waste, and it just was not in our DNA to take a bunch of VC and and get and start uh, pumping it into direct response digital advertising 
left and right and, and buying clicks at, you know, ridiculous uh, expense just to get that next marginal customer in the door, not worrying about profit. It just wasn't in our DNA. So we saw that daily deals um, uh, fad come and go. And then, then, then uh, DTC brand mania hit and uh, the VC engine started up again there and a lot of uh, deep pockets, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, into some companies. I don't know what the total take across the whole DTC business uh, business sort of mania was pr presumably billions. Um, once again, we were in the, we were agonizing over, well, aren't we a DTC brand? Shouldn't we, shouldn't we be buying, you know, buying out full subway wraps and, and um, uh, national television campaigns and so on. And once again, well, you know, if, if we're not able to, to grow uh, profitably and so on, and, and is, you know, how, let's, let's go into the math and the evidence and so on and the performance of these various channels in, uh, in, and, and the, the practice, practices that these folks are applying to their growth strategy. And same result, we, uh, we just couldn't justify it. It went against our DNA. And, and of course, DTC mania came and, and it uh, started winding down a couple of years ago when I think people looked under the hood of a number of these companies and, and found out this growth, growth at all costs uh, mentality. You know, at some point you have to become a real business. Um, it hasn't fully played out yet, but but uh, uh, seems seems like that's the inevitable end. Although, you know, don't ask me to predict the, the stock market or anything. So that's just all the way through. It's been this relentless pursuit of better and more efficient and more value for customers. And uh, we've just had a hard time deviating from that, from that, um, those fundamentals. And like I said, it's in our DNA and it's a, it's hard, it's a hard thing to move away from something so core and fundamental to the foundation of an organization. So um, to, to speak to how, do, so, so furniture is, you're right. Traditionally, it's a very capitally, uh, a capital intensive business. And you know the you have to you have to buy the you have to buy your inventory up front. You have to uh, so you have to pay for the manufacturing, and then you have to you have to wait for a month or six weeks for it to cross the ocean. Generally, if you're procuring it from uh, overseas, then you have to have to uh, house it in the warehouse, and then and then fulfill it to customers. So it is a and of course these are huge. You know, sofa in a, in a box is a big bulky item. So. Um, but once again, we applied the same type of reasoning there. Although there are a couple of fundamentals about the furniture business that aren't that aren't very uh, broadly popularized. Although some of your listeners may have experienced the results of it um, without realizing that it's quite widespread, and that is that damage rates on furniture deliveries are kind of ridiculously high. I um, maybe maybe uh, Jordan or one of my colleagues can provide you the exact figures. I don't want to miss I don't want to misquote it, but you're talking about sort of high single digit or low double digit uh, damage rates on delivery. And, and then that results in high return rates or refund rates. And, uh, and, and of course, if you're doing a return, that's incredibly costly. A truck has to go out and pick the unit up and replace it. So you're talking about two or three trips, a significant percentage of the time, which you have to add to your cost of goods. We, we looked at this really early on and 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 thought this is kind of we didn't actually realize that the how bad the industry was overall and we thought well we 
just pragmatically, we've got to get our, our return rates way down so that we can uh, we can maintain efficiency here. And just made sense to us that in order to keep damage rates and return rates low, we had to sell high quality product, and uh, and we had to um, package them properly. So we invested a, a lot into packaging technology and packaging of our products. Uh, we sort of went away, went against the grain, at least we discovered we had in in retrospect or in hindsight. And our damage rates are sort of one tenth that of the industry average, and and uh, consequently our return rates are are very low as well. So that that industry accepted overhead cost that is inevitably passed on to customers is something we don't we don't suffer. Uh, on this, uh, in, in the same breath, I, I, I should also say that it can always be lower, and and uh, we generally aren't satisfied with things until they're uh, we we won't be satisfied with return rates and damage rates until they're zero, but. Um, that's all part of the relentless pursuit of remarkably better that we're here for. And in addition to decreasing return rates, were you able to negotiate better terms with your suppliers over time? And early on, were they giving you at all any favorable payment terms? So no, we weren't able to negotiate uh, great terms early on. We just simply didn't have the volume uh, to do that. But as, as we grew, that we, our, our ability to negotiate um, increased uh, but you know, ne negotiation is an interesting one. If you, if you, uh, I had this formative experience early in my career, I was negotiating a deal with, uh, with a large company. And I remember he asked me at the end, once we'd come to terms, he asked me what, if I knew what a, uh, what a win-win was. And it turns out I didn't real, I didn't know that, that a, <laughs> it's so obvious, but a win-win is when you, is when both parties walk out of a negotiation feeling like they have won. I mean, if if you, uh, you know, I, I I remember thinking if you walk out and you feel like you've got most of what you want, it's not really a win-win. You know, it's it's like I haven't, I I did okay. A real a real the the feature of a really well-structured deal is when everyone feels like they've won on both sides. So. You, you know, I think a lot of companies may, or a lot of people might, a lot of organizations might take the negotiation tack of just go for everything, be as one side as you can on the deal. Um, we haven't generally taken that. We've been very, we, we work really closely with our vendors. And um, as we've grown, we've been, again, pragmatic about things. We're, we're, uh, uh, we're very measured with negotiation. We, we, uh, we, aren't, we aren't out to squeeze every possible penny at, at sort of put the blinders on as to the actual uh, uh, the actual behaviors that squeezing every possible penny out of something might might uh, result in like for example changing the bill of materials if you get a really low cost you might celebrate it on one end and then discover that actually there's been a material substitution that has compromised the quality of products and, and that you only realize that uh, you know six eight twelve months later once customers start calling in and and you fail to deliver your your quality promise. So, uh, in short, yes, our ability to negotiate has improved over the years as our volumes have grown. But, um, but uh, we have been very careful to not get carried away with uh, with being such uh, strong negotiators that it that that we lose sight of the long term. And on that topic of negotiation, but targeted differently. How did you go about winning and retaining top talent? I think one of the biggest hurdles for a bootstrap business, 
uh, and bringing in some of your points from earlier is that you don't have as much capital to freely spend. You also don't have all of the quote sexiness of being on the front page of all of these different journals and, and websites that says, Hey, look at this unicorn. Um, so it becomes a lot harder for bootstrap companies to recruit. So how did you go about finding and, and winning and, and retaining great talent? Um, we were, we were, we didn't compromise. We, uh, so it, you're right. It's very difficult to attract really top performers and strong, uh, and, and talented folks in the beginning. In fact, in, in some cases, if you're particularly, if you're not, uh, if you don't have very deep pockets and large cash reserves, it becomes almost, almost impossible, but but we we always strove to uh, or strive to to raise the bar. So every 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 person that we hired, we were really really careful, um, and and we we. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if you've ever or you've ever been in the position where you felt like you you're sort of desperate to hire someone for a position a given position. I certainly have in the past, and and that's one thing we guarded against really carefully here that. We just won't make the hiring decision until we're really confident that we're making the right one for the for that position, and it, that that methodology served us served us pretty well. We're also fortunate that you know Vancouver is a um, Vancouver is a is a really uh, uh, has some really strong talent, uh, really really great talent pool here. So there are a lot of uh, a lot of great great folks in Vancouver, and then as we've expanded to other other cities. Um, uh, and, and and sort of broadened out our our uh, recruitment uh, geography. We've we've uh, we've we've applied similar rules or similar methodology, and we've uh, we've stuck to our guns on quality and raising the bar. And and uh, we've been fortunate, I'd say. And now the company is over nine hundred employees, I believe. That is correct. We are somewhere over nine hundred. I'd be curious to hear more about just the breakdown of the employees um, and, and maybe more specifically early on when you were dividing labor between the founders, did you map out your org chart and know sort of, hey, this is how we want the company to look later on? Or is it something that evolved over time? No, it's entirely evolutionary. You know, when, when there's so so it's sort of where's the next opportunity and what do we what do we need to do to capture it and uh and 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 be effective to win the business in that particular opportunity and uh let's find the right people put establish a team and then they can go off and, and and uh generally have the autonomy to do what they got to do to uh to make it work so no we we haven't it's sort of i think it's actually somewhat of a futile job to uh to map out a future state of an organization chart beyond uh, you know, with, with, with any sort of precision beyond maybe six months, um, you, you, you need to, you need, in my opinion, uh, you need to, you need to be agile in most everything that you do. You need, you need to have, uh, you need to be able to, to, you need to be flexible in the organization. You need to put, put the right people in the right, in the right areas. And you, you need to, uh, you need to be able to make some what amount to be difficult decisions in some some cases where um, you recognize that some some folks are might be would be able to contribute uh, 
better in in different positions. Um, so, so no, uh, I don't. I, I like I said. I think it's I think it's pretty futile to map things out too far into the future. You have to be agile. And I think that actually applies to to your own personal responsibilities as well. As I was looking around, I noticed that you recently shifted from chief marketing officer to chief operating officer internally. That's right. I'd, I'd be curious uh, to hear the following. Why, why did you make that shift and how has the adjustment been? Um, yeah, so, so I'm a computer engineer uh, originally and I, I, uh, um, I, I had some experience managing digital, digital advertising platforms and making them highly efficient. So at the time that I, that I came to Article uh, and joined in the operation full-time, up until then I'd been contributing, but full-time, um, really we had, a, we had a major need in, in our digital advertising uh, efforts. Um, so so uh, that's, that's where I, my, the first sort of professional niche was. And uh, and then that that role expanded. So this is in the CMO role, but but it was it was several different roles over the course of a couple of years. That role expanded to then include uh, some operations operational um, uh, improvements. So you know once it, you have these kind of phases of growth of an organization. First of all, you're you know you start just. Uh, couple of people in a room and if, if, if you need to know the current state of a vastly um, different part of the business, you, you have nothing more to just turn your chair around and ask the head of that other part of the business who's sitting right next to you or right behind you how things are going and you get all the information you need or all the information that exists in about one second. But then as a, the organization grows, there's that, that, that directness um, disappears and you have to replace it with something else. And if you're not deliberate about how you replace your organizational framework uh, and, and, and plan, plan out those information flows and, and, and continue to map out the accountability and authority, decision-making authority and consequent accountability uh, for people, then your decision-making velocity and uh, slows down the alignment of the team. You know, you have people doing different things or they're it, that are contrary to one another, or uh, there's redundancy that, that occurs. Um, so, so after after uh, contributing or, or building out our digital um, digital advertising, or, or sort of contributing significantly to our digital advertising uh, specialty here, then then it became we, we'd grown to this point where that turn your desk turn your chair around type communication. Uh, and, and direct accountability for things had had diminished uh, as we grew. So I had to ramp up quickly on, you know, some organizational theory and project management philosophies and methodology, and and uh, try to reconcile all of those and make a whole lot of terrible mistakes uh, and, and run experiments and so on and um, uh, and and. Uh, uh, and then joined several departments together that included uh, that included creative uh, and and then the various disciplines in marketing. So that was pretty dynamic all the way through. And and then uh, about a uh, about a year ago when we made the when, when I made the switch, uh, well, we just had a fantastically talented um, uh, individual uh, Duncan who who had 
for all intents and purposes, by that stage, been running our marketing uh, function for some time, and it and and uh, uh, it just made sense for him to to um, become fully accountable for it, and and for me to move on to the next place that that needed sort of to be um, stabilized. Put it that way. I seemed I seem to be. I was I was having this joke with a, a couple of my colleagues over here that I. Uh, where there is a an area in need of stabilization, I seem to migrate to, <laughs> um, and, and then uh, so 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 then I, I have this uh, title, uh, chief operating officer. Titles are some I, I, I think um, I think they're uh, at least here in my case, it's not particularly informative as to my day to day. So so a lot of my time right now I'm I'm spending with our technology teams, our our software uh, or technology products, software engineering, IT infrastructure, and data engineering, um, which doesn't sound particularly operational, but uh, or maybe it does. I'm not sure. I don't know. Don't quite know what the op what what the definition is. Although some people might 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 say, well, COO, you've probably got a lot to do with supply chain. But actually, I have very little to do with supply chain other than uh, working with our software teams to to build the tooling. To make our supply chain more efficient and, and more effective, so I guess that's the that's what I do. I, I, I uh, I'm the stabilizer. I, I'm a stabilizing uh, force until until um, uh, until we until there's someone that's clearly better than me at that in that particular area of specialty, and then and then I kind of move on to the next thing. <laughs> well, I love the idea of of stabilizer. But we were in a very unstable period in 2020. And of course, with COVID, and, and we discussed this at the very beginning, uh, supply chains unraveled a bit. Uh, I'm sure there was a, a short lull in consumer demand in the March, April, May period. But then as people started moving into new homes and people started refurnishing their homes and realizing the importance of space, I'm guessing that demand just went off the charts for you guys. So I'd be curious to hear about that period of time and how, as the stabilizer, you handled the stress in the supply chain and the team overall. Okay, so good good point. Let me qualify that that term stabilizer. Um, uh, stabilizing influence. I, because if you look at the before and the after, I, I think objectively you wouldn't be able to say, it is now stable. You could say it went from a uh, from a state of more instability to less instability. Uh, so, so okay, that qualified. Um, and of course, I have no influence on external uh, destabilizing factors. Uh, and and you nailed it. That last March was um, last March was was intense. The uh, you know, for for a couple of weeks there, no one really knew what was going to happen, and and we were no different. So we had all kinds of battle plans drawn up, um, and then and then the surge in demand happened, and we were on the uh, you know we were incredibly fortunate in our to be in the in the business that we are uh, uh, to to be positioned correctly to take advantage of that. So it turned from this um, cash preservation type mode into a uh, uh, into how do we, how do we satisfy this this surge in demand mode? Uh, sort of an about phase happened happened over the course of a week or two, and yeah, it it, it was sort of one thing to the next. Uh, you know, the initially we we were able to supply out of our existing inventory, and uh, and we. Uh, 
I learned that a, a lot of our competitors just outright canceled a lot of their orders with vendors uh, at around that time. We did not cancel any of our orders. We we put a uh, delay on, on on a bunch of our orders, but we didn't we didn't outright cancel. We didn't think that would be a um, uh, well. We had commitments with our vendors. We had arrangements with our vendors, and and we thought that just outright canceling would just be too disruptive and for everyone, and that. Um, uh so so we didn't uh and that was the right thing thank goodness at, uh, to to do so we were able to uh we were able to um ramp things up quite effectively during that time it was a real challenge though you know the uh we 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 started doing contactless delivery before that was popularized uh, obviously, there was a huge concern for safety of, of our of our employees. We call our employees particles. So, safety major safety safety considerations for particles, and and also for our customers. Um, so we had to we had to adjust our policies really quickly there. So it, it was actually you know what uh, in retrospect it was we went into this really scrappy startup mode. Um, Despite being at that time a company of hundreds of people, we were. Uh, it was it was interesting. We sort of just moved very very quickly, to uh, to do what what needed to be done at, at, at those various times. And then, the, the, it, it was an it was and continues to be incredibly dynamic on the supply chain side, where I mean e even uh, even this week I think starting last week there have been lockdowns in Southeast Asia that are now interrupting. They're going to have ramifications on, on uh, supply chain disruptions coming up in a couple of months here uh, when when today's orders are delayed. Um, uh, not just uh, like across the board for for many different companies. Uh, we're navigating through that one right now. Then there's there are tariff challenges. There are. Uh, uh, you know, just when just when 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 you get ahead with finished good vendors, or, or then you discover that uh, you can't get containers, and when you get a container, you finally you you can find a container and, and get it loaded. Then you can't then then trucking to the port's an issue, and then when you get it to the port, you can't get it on the boat, and when you finally get it on the boat, you, the boat makes it to a North American port, but you but but um, it's 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 in a big traffic jam, and now you can't uh, unload it fast enough, and then. Uh, all the way through, there are these challenges, and uh, uh, but the team has been nimble in in accommodating uh, and 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 dealing with, and then ultimately transcending many of these challenges. Not not to say that we've been perfect at it. There are still significant delays uh, on on much of our catalog and many of our products, and that we're working through. But yeah, we we've sort of been in this highly agile startup mode now for uh, more than a year on the supply chain side. Well, hopefully uh, things start or continue to stabilize as the vaccines kick in and, and we get back to normal. But, um, you know, you're now 10 years into the article journey. And it's actually surprising to me how much of a startup it still sounds like, despite how successful uh, you, you've been as a brand and a business. So I would just be curious to hear uh, any you know, key lessons learned from bootstrapping this business, um, as well as any other lessons you've learned from your prior companies you've started. I'll give you a really easy one from prior companies. Uh, if you ever start a medical devices company, make sure you do go and raise a lot of a lot of capital because medical devices is a very hard thing to do in a bootstrapped fashion. With, with respect to to article, we have learned. I mean, we've learned a ton of 
of things. I, it'd be hard to boil it all down into a handful of uh, sound bites, but um, uh, I, I think I think one one recurring theme is if you if you have really um, I mean, you know, we're we're here uh, to our, our article is is here to be the easiest way to create a beautiful modern space. That is our uh, that is our our, um, our our mission here, and uh, we've we've we, we've managed. We've been fortunate to we've been fortunate to uh, assemble a team of really passionate, um, smart. Uh, folks to uh to contribute to that um to deliver on that uh endeavor and we have stayed away from um bureaucracy and 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 we've maintained uh we've always encouraged people to maintain a high level of ownership and personal accountability for results and have uh focused on equipping them with the authority and autonomy that they need to, to, uh, to deliver. And, you know, when you get, when you get, when you get, um, as we've grown, there've been, there's been this pressure to, uh, professionalize and organize and, and, uh, you know, there are these big enterprise, these inflexible enterprise, uh, solutions that come along and they'll pitch these, these, this is the way of doing things and so on. But one of, one of the, um, uh, one thing that we do across the business, we've been doing it since day one. It's sort of one of the fundamental tenets we were founded founded upon is, you know, you ask why, why is it done this way? What is the actual objective here? What's the what's the better way of doing it? Um, sure, this is the way everyone else does it, or many others do it. What is there a better way uh, to do it? And and if there is, then we, we then we'll do it that way. So so there is there is nothing really sacred here we're constantly questioning assumptions there's there's uh there's really a culture of um of uh, rigorous debate on everything um all the time everything from uh how marketing works in the most fundamental sense to how to run a really efficient meeting um <laughs> uh, on the operational side and you know constantly questioning why is there a better way how do we make this better how do we make this more efficient how do we drive more value how do we how do we how do we deliver, you know, continue to deliver unbeatable value on our on, on high quality furniture, home decor? Um, how do we uh, how do we listen to customers more? How do we deliver? How do we understand our customers' needs more? How do we deliver more value? How do we eliminate waste and deliver that value over there? So, um, accountability, uh, autonomy, and uh, questioning assumptions, and, and 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 seeking a better way. That's that's kind of the fundamental. Uh, uh, that's 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 core. That's core to what we do here. Well, I know it's difficult to sum up decades of entrepreneurship into a couple of minutes of sound bites, but I thought that was an excellent job. So, really appreciate you sharing that, and and really appreciate you sharing all these insights. I think founders, especially our founders that listen to this, who are largely bootstrapped companies, will really enjoy it and find it inspirational. Well, I hope so. Um, yeah, you know, there 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 are lots of different ways to do it, and and. Uh... Yeah, it's uh, it's a fun journey. It's stressful at times, um, but uh, but that's kind of what you sign up for when you start a business. <laughs>